First Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 25, it says, Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. As we began the letter to the Thessalonians, this first letter, um, back at the very beginning, he started out and, and through most of the letter, he had quite a focus on some of the Christian virtues. Right, He commended them at the very beginning of the letter for their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. As we got into the letter, we found that he continued to emphasize those three things and then adding to it also a level of personal holiness as he focused on that for quite a bit as well. Well, as we come toward the very end of his letter, we're actually in just kind of the final greetings. In these final greetings... He focuses now, rather than just on Christian virtues, but he focuses on some Christian disciplines. You see, there are certain disciplines in the Christian life, things that we discipline ourselves to do, things that we participate in that are a blessing to our life. And as the Apostle Paul is just kind of connecting with these people one last moment in this letter, as he's closing the letter, he brings up three of those disciplines. And then he caps it at the very end by wishing upon them grace. He often began and ended letters with this wish and blessing of blessings of peace and grace. And I find it interesting that as he closes with this desire for them to experience God's grace in their life, that that's coupled right in the context with these three Christian disciplines because it's often through those Christian disciplines that we really have the context where we experience the grace of God in a full way. Well, as we consider them here this morning, and he's already alluded to this first one in the passage before. In fact, he told them to do it without ceasing. The first Christian discipline that he mentions is prayer. He just says, brothers, pray for us. It's kind of like the missionary letters that we get. The Apostle Paul was a missionary. And from Acts chapter 13 on, the church commissioned him to be a missionary, to go out and plant churches, win people to Christ, preach the gospel, and then build those churches and And the rest of all these letters, everything comes out of those missionary endeavors. And what he's calling upon them to do at this time, he says, look, pray for us. You know, every missionary that we've ever had come through here looking for partnership in their ministry asks for that as their number one thing. They always say, you know what, it takes finances too, and we would love for you to give and have that kind of partnership with us in this ministry. But you know what, if you can't do that, still pray. Please pray. And that's patterned after the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, he's... What is he asking for at this point? He says, look, just pray for us. If you look through the candies, what do they have in their missionary letter? They have things to pray for and things to thank God for and things that are coming up. And Same with Chad's and every mission letter, the same thing, letting us know more accurately how we can join in with them. You know, the Apostle Paul is just looking for something that's kind of reciprocal because if you look back or remember back to chapter 1 and verse 2, he had pointed out that he was praying for them. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Now, we did talk about prayer just recently. It's not very far back up into chapter 5. But what I would like to do is just pause for a moment on it and recognize the benefit that we get from prayer. Prayer is such an encouragement. You know, we sang a song a little bit earlier, Sweet Hour of Prayer. You know, I don't know if you've ever tried to sit down and pray for an hour, like continuously. I remember the first time I tried to sit down and pray for an hour. I couldn't believe how long a minute was. You know, like I'm going to pray, so you kind of put a watch on the on the thing there and kneel down or something or however you're going to pray. And, and, and you start to pray and you look up and you're like, three minutes? 
And, and you know what I found that in some of those experiences, you get to where, okay, you, you cover everybody, kind of like you did even when you were a little kid, when going to bed, God bless grandpa, grandma, aunt, uncles, and all that kind of stuff. And you, you go through all that stuff, and you're like, okay, I still got 55 minutes left. <laughs> now, what do I, and you, and you struggle. Right? And it's like, well, what do I pray for? What do people pray? And then, so then you start touring the mission field. And, and a lot of times it's when you come to that end and you're going up that you just start to talk to God. And you're like, wow, this is, this is awesome. Maybe if the beginning was like that, I'd do this more often. Right? But prayer can be such an emboldening thing, such an encouraging thing. You know, I've wrestled it back and forth a little bit because I've found that a lot of times, like if I lay in bed at night, to be honest, a lot of times I turn on the TV at night when I go to bed. Because if I don't, I find that my mind just kind of keeps going. And I have a hard time shutting it down a little bit. So turn on TV, something I've seen a lot. And then my mind will just kind of drift off and I'll go to sleep. But you know, sometimes I don't turn it on. And if I have trouble going to sleep, then sometimes I'll pray. And to be honest, I struggle with a little bit how to see that. Because on the one hand, I've noticed that when I pray, a lot of times I get into prayer a little bit. And I'll wake up the next morning and realize I was just praying and I just fell asleep. And so then I struggle with, was God offended? You know, because on the one hand, I'd be a little bummed if somebody I was talking to fell asleep. I don't know why. I've been doing it every Sunday for many years and (laughs) I should be used to it. But it's like, I think, I hope God isn't offended then I think on the other side of that, I think if through prayer you connect to God and you feel such comfort that you just do fall asleep, then isn't that a good thing also? I remember one time when, when my son Daniel was born, and he was born with some heart problems that were really disturbing. They, they moved us immediately the next morning off to another uh, hospital to go see a specialist. And that, or, well, they sent us, didn't move us, but they sent us, and, and we were told there was going to involve surgeries down the road in his life and all these things, and we were, well, the first night I found out about it, all the joy of having the baby earlier that day, and then I get a call later on after I'd gotten home and finding out about this, and we were stressed, and I hurried to the hospital, and nothing else we could do that night, and then I went, went back, and I went to my in-laws, and I just crashed on their couch that night, and I remember just crying out to God for my son. And I remember reading a couple Psalms, and you know what? I thought, I'm going to be up all night because I'm just, in, I'm just stressed about this. And I read some Psalms and started reflecting on some of the things that God said in His Word, and I cried out to Him. And you know what? I just, I drifted off to sleep and I slept all night. And I woke up the next morning and I thought, man, the comfort. When you're against something big and it looks overwhelming, when you see that God is bigger, and He's with you in this, He's got you in this, then I saw that as a very good thing. And so maybe God's not bummed if we fall asleep on Him. Maybe it's His comfort that lulls us to sleep in that. I even I remember seeing that they had an advertisement for an app that, here, we're going to put you to sleep every night with the Bible. And I thought, well, I don't know about that. It's really the way to do it. I want to pay attention. But you know what? On the other hand, why not have that the last thing you hear for the day? That's a good way to go to sleep. And so you know, I wrestle with that a little bit, but I think that's a good thing. You know, prayer is encouraging when you see other people involved in it as well, too. I had a chance recently to sit down with somebody that told me right in front of you, so on a certain day of the week, every week, this is when I pray for Little Fork Baptist Church and this is when I pray for you. And I was just like, ah, that feels so good. I remember Al Egerbrotten dropped a list one time and there was my name and my family's name on the list for Tuesday, I think it was. 
what an encouragement it is when other people are praying for you. You know, I often picture when I think of prayer, I think it's a good picture of prayer in the Old Testament. In the book of Exodus, it says this, Then Amalek came out and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with a sword. I think that's an awesome Awesome picture because what is what is the real meaning of that? The real meaning is Joshua is going into the battle and Moses is up on the hill holding up the staff of God. In other words, it's going to symbolize God's involvement, God's presence, right? And, but, but it's not just there. He doesn't just stick it in the dirt and leave it there. He's got to hold it up. And so I think it's a good analogy of prayer because as Moses holds up Joshua, who's fighting the battle below, he's with Joshua, and it's actually on Moses whether or not he succeeds or fails. When his arms start to get tired, then come down, then Joshua, the battle would turn the other way, arms up. And so then you see even a better picture of prayer because then Aaron and her get on each side. They're like, Moses, sit on this rock so you're a little lower. Because if they all stick their arms up, they're all going to get tired. And so now you got two more people involved. And what does Jesus say? Where two or more are gathered together in My name, there am I in the midst. And so we see the encouragement of prayer. You see, that's exactly what Paul's calling for. Paul's calling for his discipline. He's saying, look, you guys, pray for us. Look, you guys, while we're out there in the battle, hold up your hands with us. Be involved in the pursuit. Be involved in the battle. And so he calls us to prayer. Prayer is an important discipline in the Christian life. The second one is people. Notice what he says. He says, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. You know, there's at least four places in the Apostle Paul's writings where he writes to the church and says, greet everyone with a holy kiss. It didn't even dawn on me exactly the wording of this until I was reading through a commentary. But the commentary pointed out that this guy, this pastor, was going to probably go up and he's going to go and walk down each row and greet each person. So he's asking him to do with a holy kiss. I was wondering who was going to be sitting up front this morning. And, and, and who would be regretting it? No, don't get any big ideas. I'm not doing that. <laughs> but what, what is he doing though? He's established per, these personal relationships. This priority of people. We need people. We're made for people. It's one of the factors of the image of God. You know, God is a social being just in and of Himself. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You have a relationship just within the person of God Himself. And he's saying, look, when, when he writes to him, he says, I want you to greet one another, greet everyone with a holy kiss. Now, a kiss was kind of interesting. We don't, we don't do that much in our, in our culture. It's more of a handshake, right? A hug. Those are good things. Kiss, not so much. I remember Lisa growing up, they had a set of cousins that the first thing when they saw you, they'd come up and give you a plant one on your lips. They called them the kissing cousins. You wanted to be farther down the line, so maybe they kind of lost track by the time they got to you. Because it's just not a big part of our culture. And their culture is a bigger part of their culture. right? And in fact, if you were approaching somebody with some superiority or level position, you would have kissed maybe their feet or their knees, even an elbow or a hand. But for a friend, it was on the cheek. We're friends. Greet one another the way you greet 
a friend. The church is God's people. The church is God's family. The church is God's friends. And so our relationships within the church it ought to reflect that. You know, the, the word church means a, a called out assembly. What it, what it was, it was kind of a somewhat, maybe a little bit of a political term. Because the word ecclesia was a was a was a calling out, and, and and what the idea was is that if you had some community business that you needed to take care of, there was somebody another word that's in the New Testament, a kerux, a herald, and he would go around and he would call people out, call people out to come out to this community meeting to conduct the business, and and so they everybody kind of gather in maybe the town square, and then they would conduct the business for the community. Well, it's it's that word that Jesus would tell his disciples, I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build my calling out. My, my heralds, my preachers are going to call my people out to conduct my business. And it's going to be my community. My community of people. My church. And you know, that's, that's what it is. Like that little old the kid's song. You know, the church is not the building. The church is not the steeple. The church is the people. I've missed some parts of it in there. I don't remember it from a long time ago. But but that but that's what we're the church. You know, somebody oh Chris put a put a thing uh, from Festus explaining it from Gunsmoke on the on the church wall this this week on Facebook and it's Festus explaining he says, Well there's church people and there's God's people. Church people go to church. God's people are the church. Yesterday I pulled into a gas station and I pulled up behind a car at, at the gas pump. I said, Be church and just kind of out of the blue, Lisa was like, what? What are you talking about? On the back of that car, the car right in front of me says, be church. She's, she had her glasses on. I didn't. It says, be the church, it says. But, but that's the point. That's, we are the church. We don't, we don't just go to church. We are the church. So that's why he's telling them, look, you need people. Greet one another. Greet every person he was supposed to. You know, throughout the New Testament, there's a lot of passages that focus on the one another's, what, what we're supposed to be engaged in and doing with one another. Romans is a book that has a lot of them. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 10, he says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Romans 12 verse 16 says, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Romans 14 and verse 13 says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another. As they were looking at some gray areas about what kind of meats they should eat or not eat and that kind of thing. Romans chapter 15 and verse 5, it says, May the God of endurance and encouragement encourage you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 15 verse 7 says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. In the book of Thessalonians, we've come across several passages that have dealt with this one another aspect as well. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 12, it says, and May the Lord make you increase and abound in love one for another and for all as we do for you. They had done well in this. In fact, in chapter 4 and verse 9, he says, Concerning brotherly love, you have no need that anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. In chapter 4 and verse 18, after talking about the things that are going to happen toward the end when Christ returns, he says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. And in chapter 5.11, he says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. 
And in chapter 5 and verse 15, he says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And this is just a small sampling of them. But consistently throughout Scripture, it calls us to be there for one another, to love one another, to encourage one another, build one another up. Don't judge one another and be harsh in gray areas. I wasn't dealing with sin issues because we are called upon to uh, also admonish one another when it comes to sin issues as well. But um, all these different ways that we're supposed to be with one another and connect with one another and strengthen one another. You see, we need people. If we don't know by that by now, I don't know what's going to teach us. I mean, remember what it was like in the pandemic when you couldn't be around your people so much? I was thinking yesterday just, just about the things that, that had to do with church during that time. So we were shut down for a while, except we went instantly to Facebook Live and started reaching out that way. One Sunday we're in here getting ready because we wanted it to be as much like church as we could make it. So rather than do it out of my office at home or the office downstairs, which we could have done or something like that, I thought, nope, I'm just gonna, it's gonna be just like church as much as I can make it. So we set up a tripod with a phone at first and then got the camera mounted and, and, and so that it could catch the pulpit and everything. And I just preached right from the pulpit just like always. And, and Lisa was there making sure everything was working fine. And I remember one day we're in here getting ready. Not quite time yet, but it's coming. And we look out and there's a car or two parked out across the street. So I recognize the cars go over there. There's some people from our church sitting across the street in their car. And you know what the plan was? To watch church on their phone in their car across the street. Still watching it on a device. They could have watched it on TV at home, probably. But they'd watch it on their phone across the street. Why? So that they could feel a little bit closer to you who they were used to meeting with in this building on Sunday morning. Because right then they couldn't. Now, we just told them come in. So, so we, they could sit all the way in the back anyway. It was way more than six feet. But at any rate, I remember we were shut down that Easter. We had to do it. So we did a drive up cinnamon roll handout. I loved that morning. That was so encouraging just to be able to see people. We just hand it to them through the windows of their car, whatever, run them down the steps. And, but just, just to be able to see each other, uh, just for a moment. When it came around to harvest supper time, we had a, we did a drive up harvest supper and we had a, remember we had a line that was over two blocks long out here, people coming up to pick up dinners that they could take home to their families and, and in fact so much so that we completely ran out of food. Usually we eat the leftovers the next, on Sunday, but we didn't have any. In fact, we had to order pizza from the restaurant to feed the people that served all the wonderful Thanksgiving type dinners. You know, I remember thinking, are people going to get out of the habit of doing church? And so when this pandemic is over and we get, a, and we get going back to church, then we're, we're going to have a hard time getting everybody back. And I found that exactly the opposite was true. There are some, maybe even still, that haven't come back since. But actually, it felt like the floodgates opened and everybody was so excited to be back together. And you know what? When people would have used to maybe grab their coats and talk for a couple minutes and out the door, all of a sudden they were hanging around for like an hour plus. Why? Because we missed it. We need the people. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is connecting with here at the end. You know, there is, there is a struggle for some to make themselves connect with people. Make themselves get out. Make themselves... There, there is an honest struggle. But you know what? You need it. You just really need it. And not only that, but other people need you to be there as well. Well, then lastly, precepts. Precepts. Now, I chose that word obviously because it starts with a P. But it is a common word used in the Bible to describe the Bible. Precepts, laws, promises, 
That one would work too, actually. I didn't think of that one. But lots of different words in the Bible that describe the Bible. And then what is the last thing that he, he puts in them as a Christian discipline here? He says, I put you under oath. So this is a big deal. Before the Lord, to have this letter read to all the brothers. Obviously, the letter that the Apostle wrote is part of the Word of God. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And the Apostle Paul has, makes no bones about it. He says, I... I put you under an oath. You swear that you will read this to all the brothers. And he gets to him, and you know what? That's the thing. We need, we need the Word of God. That is how God reveals Himself to us. That's how we get to know God is through His Word. That's how we get to know ourselves is, is through His Word as well. And so this idea of, of His, His Word. Precepts in Psalm 19, verses 7 through 8, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Notice just within that one little paragraph, he refers to it as the law. He refers to it as a testimony. The precepts of the Lord. The commandment of the Lord. And so he uses many different words. And all the words together all just mean the same thing. That We're talking about the Word of God and having it in our lives. As we look at Psalm 119 and verse 4, he says, You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. That's kind of the same flavor, isn't it, that we see in First Thessalonians here, where he says, I put you under oath. In other words, this is serious. He says, You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. You know, Psalm 119, which this verse is found within, is the longest chapter in the Bible, and the whole thing is about the Bible. It's broken down into sections of eight verses long, and all kind of following the Hebrew alphabet. But every eight-verse section is just on the richness of God's Word and its practical use within our lives. You know, in Psalm chapter 1, as he begins the compilation of all the Psalms, he starts, uh, he starts off in Psalm 1 with a great statement about the Word of God. In fact, the whole thing is about it. He is describing us as believers. What are, what are we like? What are we to be like? He said, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And so we're, we're people that are separated from sin within this world separated from a concept of worldliness and were sanctified unto God. But notice how he describes that sanctification. He says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Meditates. It's that idea. It's best illustrated by a cow, actually. You know, the cow with its four stomachs. It eats and it goes into the first stomach and then he brings it back up and chews on it a little more. Second stomach chews on a little more. The process repeats until it's gone through all four. So by the time the cow is done with it, he's pretty much got what he can get out of that. That's kind of the concept of meditation. Meditation is not Eastern meditation, not transcendental meditation, where you try to empty your mind. This meditation, scriptural meditation, is engaging your mind, filling your mind, taking in your mind a passage of Scripture and thinking about what it means and how it impacts different parts of your life and what you learn about God through it, what you learn about you through it, what you learn about your circumstances and situations, and what you're called upon by God to do within those circumstances and situations. You keep mulling that over. So he says his delight is in the law of the Lord. His law, he meditates day and night. And what impact does that have? What result? He is like a tree 
planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. All that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You notice he starts out that passage and he says, my people, my righteous people will, there's places they will not stand, there's places they will not sit in with the wicked and the scoffers, with the sinful. And God says at the end, there's also a place where the wicked will not stand and where they will not sit, and it's with him. It's in his judgment. What is the difference between the two? The Word of God. The difference between the two is the one meditates on the Word of God, loves the Word of God, delights in the Word of God. We need the Word of God. Just as the Apostle Paul would finish this letter by saying, I put you under oath, make sure everybody hears this. Read this to them all. We need the Word of God. In the book of Hebrews, he's writing to Jewish Christians that are going through some struggle. They're going through some persecution. What he's going to do throughout the book of Hebrews, he's going to say, look, in the Jewish faith, you looked up to different things. You looked up to Moses. You looked up to Aaron. You looked up to angels. You looked up to the priests. You looked up to the tabernacle system, the sacrificial system. And he's going to take each of those things kind of one at a time and say, you know what? Jesus is way better. He starts with the angels. Look at the angels. Jesus, way better. Which of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? He's going to take Moses. Moses was a faithful as a servant in God's house. Jesus is the son. Trump serpent every day. Aaron, the sacrificial system. Why do you want a sacrificial system where you got to after, offer sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice? Clearly they're not working if you've got to keep doing it when you could have Jesus Christ once and for all sacrifice, accomplished it, sat down at the right hand of God. Priests never sat down. There's no chair in the tabernacle for them or in the temple. Jesus finished the job. No comparison. No contest. In the midst of all that and Him showing, look at your forefathers in the wilderness. What did they do? Did they hold on in patient faith and trust God? No, they rebelled against God. And none of them ended up in the promised land except for two. And in doing that, he says, now what about you guys? In chapter 5, he says, about this we have much to say. Now what he's specifically talking about is there's a, there's a character in the Old Testament called Melchizedek. And there's a bit of mystery surrounding him. And he's been using some of that mystery to point to Christ. Uh, But he recognized that this Melchizedek character, it's kind of a deep subject. It's hard to get your mind around a little bit. And so he says, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So he sees writing to them and he says, you know what, i got some more to say to you, but the problem is you're not going to get it because you have grown dull in your hearing. Why have you grown dull in your hearing? Because you haven't been practicing the Word of God. You haven't been digging into it and seeing where it fits in life and putting it to practice. You could have been teachers. You should have been teachers. I don't think his point isn't even really whether or not they teach. His point is they they would know as much as a teacher would know. And he's saying you've had enough time to grow, but you haven't grown. You You haven't been engaged in this way and you need to get engaged. He compares them to 
feeding a small baby. We just feed them milk before they're weaned. They're not ready for the meat. But he's writing to a group. He said, look, you should be eating steaks. Chapter 6, then the very next verse, he says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary of the doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation. Then he lists a few basic things there. But the the point is, he says, you know, we need to kind of drive a stake in the ground and say, you know what, I'm going to dig into God's Word. I'm going to practice God's Word. I'm going to meditate on God's Word. I'm going to learn God's Word. I'm going to put it to work in my life. And I'm going to grow in that. And so if you find yourself here this morning and you're saying, you know what, I don't really know that much about the Bible. We have Bibles very available. A few minutes on your smartphone. You can have a Bible app on your phone, actually. You can look up any word in the whole Bible and everywhere that it's used in a moment of a couple seconds. There's a lot of stuff out there that can help you in your understanding of the Bible and help you to grow. We have so many resources, so many tools. We just need to get involved. We need to be engaged in this. And that's what the Apostle Paul is doing with these people. As he comes to the end of the letter, he says, look, I'm really asking you to be engaged in three things. I'm asking you to commit to these Christian disciplines. Pray. People. And then also, the precepts 